Welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show and thank you for joining me this Tuesday. Tonight, we are bringing you a special report on the modern era, life in the modern era. It's actually funny how this all came together because I was sitting in history class and my teacher was introducing um, our final project and this was the concept. Essentially, we were tasked with picking an era in U.S. history from the 1700s onward and doing a project on it. And this is a major grade and so of course I decided to choose a podcast because who else wants to write like long um, paragraphs for a project at the end of the year. So I chose a podcast. Audio format is my favorite. And so I was like, you know, I already have a podcast. This will be interesting. This will be fun. And so I chose the modern era. And this era has really always intrigued me because so much has happened. And the magnitude of this transcendent and revolutionary era is still being felt today. Major wars have transpired, the evolution of technology, a first, um, our first black president in this country, a scandal that led to the impeachment of the president of the United States for only the second time in U.S. history, terrorist attacks that completely changed our view, a grueling economy, and a hurricane that killed, devastated, and misplaced millions. Tonight, you will hear sound clips, um, news audio, stories, and live interviews from people who were there, witnessed, and lived through this era. I'm your host, Jeremiah Patterson, and this is a TJPS special report, Life in the Modern Era. From 1980 to 1988, Iran and Iraq engaged in intense warfare. It finally ended in August of 88 when the United Nations stepped in. A ceasefire was declared on both sides and the fighting stopped. But by mid-1990, it became clear that these two countries were still very enraged and too rancorous to want to discuss anything, let alone a potential peace treaty. That's when Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq, attended the conference in Geneva with some of the foreign ministers in the world, and peace suddenly seemed inevitably close. Notice my emphasis on inevitably there. That's because, well, after that conference, there was a speech followed by action, and Saddam Hussein had accused Kuwait of conspiring to prevent oil prices from rising in order to please Western nations who were generally dependent on Middle Eastern oil, and drawing closer to their border for oil purposes. He also justified his invasion of Kuwait by claiming that, hey, guys, look, Kuwait is not actually a real country, come on. It's just a carved out piece of Iraq. This was not true because it was actually, you know, internationally recognized as its own country back in the 1940s, shortly after World War II. And so, because of these grand assertions and accusations, Saddam Hussein decides to send in more than 100,000 troops into Kuwait, instantly making international news because this has raised tensions as he has now invaded a foreign country. This is NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw, reporting tonight from NBC News headquarters in New York. Good evening. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the tiny country that is a primary source of oil for much of the Western world. But tonight, the United States, the Soviet Union, Israel, and other powers are concentrating on diplomatic and economic solutions to this surprising and dangerous development. The invasion by 100,000 Iraqi troops backed by air cover and tanks was brutally efficient. Iraq wants control of Kuwait's territory, its oil, and the money that comes with it. 
Iraq insists that it was invited in by a rebel Kuwaiti government, but no one believes that. President George H.W. Bush was not too fond of this. As mentioned in that news report by NBC News' Tom Brokaw, diplomacy was initially on the table, but that quickly faded away. On August 3, 1990, President Bush was essentially scheduled to address the press on the south lawn of the White House. However, he was a little bit late for that, and he did eventually explain why. But here's what the president said. This was just one day after the Kuwait invasion. What Iraq has done violates every norm of international law. And uh, I've been meeting this morning with my top security experts uh, on the defense side, the economic side, and uh, I'll have another such meeting tomorrow in, uh, at Camp David. He told the press all options were open, economic and otherwise, indicating he had been meeting with his National Security Council. It was still shocking for many when the order came just four days later. It was August 7th, 1990, this was just five days after the invasion into Kuwait by Iraq, and President George Herbert Walker Bush announced Operation Desert Shield. U.S. troops would train and prepare to enter this war. Just six months later, Operation Desert Storm was a go. And in an address before the nation, he announced what had just happened. The date was January 16th, 1991. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League and a member of the United Nations, was crushed, its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. Quote, tonight the battle has been joined. That was President George H.W. Bush there making history on January 16th, 1991. And what this now meant was that the United States was officially involved here. The United States was officially in this fight. And we were going to help liberate Kuwait, and we eventually did. But what is not lost to history here is this key point. The United States joined this war not necessarily because they cared about it. It was more so a concern for the very lucrative and beneficial oil that resided there. The oil was of fundamental interest, fundamental national interest, fundamental international interest. But we weren't going to explicitly say that as our major reason. It was subtle and masqueraded behind the lens of patriotism and international moral standing. A decade later, it would be his son, George W. Bush, doing the exact same thing. The United States invaded Iraq shortly after the 9-11 attacks to look for supposed, quote, weapons of mass destruction, which was diametrically mendacious. That was a lie. There were no weapons of mass destruction at all. After receiving the death penalty for crimes against humanity, Saddam Hussein was executed in 2006. There were interesting parallels that were drawn during this time between President Bush and President Lyndon B. Johnson. Many said Bush invaded Iraq was a lot like Johnson invading Vietnam. There was basically no reason. We both went into these countries not inherently because we cared about them or the war at hand. It was merely for the U.S.'s interest and benefit. But this was just the beginning. Modern warfare was certainly not over.
1992 was quite a year in American history, and quite frankly, around the world. Hurricane Andrew struck Florida, NAFTA was signed into law, a civil war in Somalia, the Rodney King verdict, and so much more. Among the most influential events of that year was the 1992 presidential elections, and usually the elections of presidents come and go with relative ease in Americans casting their ballots. But this one? Well, let's say it was an unorthodox election. It was quite conventional. It was a different kind of American presidential politics. No, that is not a jazz musician playing his tunes at one of the new hottest clubs in the 90s. That is a presidential candidate, Bill Clinton to be exact, on the Arsenio Hall Show in 1991. Looking back on that moment in presidential history, frankly, in modern American history, I feel like is one of the, I guess, essentially the new ushering of youthfulness in American politics, because you really had never seen anything like that before. An American president or a person running, aspiring to be the president of the United States, being that essentially cool. And with the sunglasses on and everything, I mean, it was just incredible. It was also a very, very smart and essentially... Um, politically efficient idea for his staff to book him on the Arsenio Hall show. Uh, because the Arsenio Hall show back then, it was a very popular nightly television show that featured huge household names, including Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, Eddie Murphy, George Lopez, and many others. These were just some of the people that would come on for like interviews or live performances. And this show was watched by millions of viewers across the country. So getting a presidential candidate on there was a great way to not only attract black viewers, which was a major portion of this audience, but also the youth in the United States. Because of course, this moment would go viral. Of course, this would be broadcasted just beyond the Arsenio Hall show. Like this was legendary. And Clinton was this young politician, the former governor of Arkansas, and he brought this youthfulness essentially back to politics, as many would put it. His playing the saxophone along with his charm and wit portrayed him as relatable, and that was ultimately responsible for propelling him to the White House. I mean, yes, there were two other candidates, one a troubled incumbent president and the other a no BS, widely third popular party candidate. And due to the grueling economic recession, Bush was not polling well and fell short during a presidential debate appearance. Um, similarly, with growing concerns over the federal budget and national debt, the emergence of a third-party candidate, Texas native Ross Perot, was well-welcomed and accepted. He was simple, common, spoke in language that was easier for people to understand. He was also no BS type of guy. He made many people essentially feel like they could relate to him. And that's what ended up happening in the 1992 election because of him. Well, it was very, very shaky. What ended up happening in the 1992 election because Ross Perot decided to run as a third party candidate and not just a typical normal run of the mill third party candidate that gets like 3% of the vote. Ross Perot, <laughs> he garnered nearly 20% of the vote. 
20%. We're talking about a normal general presidential election where we have a Democrat that runs for president and a Republican that runs for president. Two opposing political parties, but they are the mainstream political parties in the United States. A third party candidate decides to run as an independent and he gets nearly 20%. That is just completely unheard of. And so uh, Republicans ended up blaming him for that because he ended up eating a large chunk of George Bush's um, votes. But for a third party candidate to pull something off like that was just completely remarkable. Third party candidates in the modern era um, have brought so much power to elections because they are able to influence mainstream political parties into discussing previously untouched initiatives. Ross Perot played just a seismic role by doing this in the 1992 election with his charts and the amalgamation of votes he was able to take away from George H.W. Bush. And so with Bill Clinton winning that election, becoming president of the United States, um, it was quite a success for a while. Um, Bill Clinton was a very, very popular president. And even after what I'm about to say happened next, he was still popular. He left office with a pretty high approval rating. It was in the fall of 1995 um, that he began having an affair with Monica Lewinsky. Um, she was a 21-year-old White House intern, and over the course of a year and a half, the president and Mr. Excuse me, Mrs. Lewinsky had nearly a dozen sexual encounters inside the White House. In April of 1996, Lewinsky moved to the Pentagon, where that's where that summer she began discussing those encounters with a colleague named Linda Tripp. Uh, that same year, Clinton won re-election, and in 1997, Linda Tripp began secretly recording detailed conversations with Lewinsky. Now, as I said here, um, Linda Tripp, of course, she works at the Pentagon, and she believes essentially that, you know, hey, Linda Tripp's my friend and stuff, but Linda Tripp is actually secretly recording this. She's making secret detailed records of these conversations with Monica Lewinsky. And in the winter of 1997, attorneys for Paula Jones sued the president on sexual harassment charges, and that case was later dismissed by a federal judge and a settlement was reached. But here in the Monica Lewinsky debacle, Linda Tripp, she ended up contacting the office of Kenneth Starr. Remember, Linda Tripp here is reportedly, allegedly, Mana Lewinsky's friend. At least she's, at least she thinks. And Linda Tripp ends up reporting this information to Kenneth Starr, which is the Whitewater Independent Counsel, and she provided him with this information. And ultimately, that led to FBI interviews, and then this, sec this sexual relationship was revealed. The president said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And both of them, they testified before grand juries, and Clinton admitted that he did indeed have an extramarital mar marital affair. He did have sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, and he subsequently virtually testified to a grand jury and apologized for deceiving the public and his family, also expressing regret. On September 9th, 1998, Whitewater Independent Counsel Kenneth Starr, um, he showed up to Capitol Hill and he submitted his report. This was reporting from the Wall Street Journal at the time, quote, the fate of the Clinton presidency is officially in Congress's hands. Late Wednesday afternoon, two vans delivered to the U.S. Capitol delivered 36 boxes filled with two copies of materials that represent the case for Bill Clinton's impeachment as independent counsel Kenneth Starr sees it. The report was long anticipated after four years of investigation, a probe that began with allegations about then-Governor Clinton's failed Arkansas land deal and ended with the far more damaging charges that Bill Clinton had sex with the White House intern and lied about it. 
Its findings put Mr. Clinton at the greatest political peril of any president since Richard Nixon was forced to resign over Watergate nearly a quarter century ago. End quote. That report was divulged to the public just two days later, and it laid out how Congress could impeach Clinton on 11 different grounds. Mr. Starr spoke about that during a congressional testimony in November of 1998. Bill Clinton subsequently was impeached on two articles of impeachment, and that was for lying under oath to Congress, which is essentially perjury, so he was, you know, grand jury and also obstruction of justice. Ultimately, he was not convicted because a president cannot just be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives and then bam, you're out of office. A president has to be impeached by the House, getting a majority vote in the U.S. House of Representatives, and then it goes over to the Senate where there has to be a two-thirds majority. So that's like 67 senators having to impeach, having to vote to convict the president because <laughs> the Senate essentially holds the trial for this type of thing. And so if there are not 67 senators, which of course has to be Republicans and Democrats, or depending on who holds a supermajority, it could be all, you know, 67 Republicans or all 67 Democrats. There has to be at least 67 senators, two thirds. And if the president of the United States is convicted in the Senate, he or she has to leave office upon which they can never run for president of the United States again, because they have been barred from that office per the United States Constitution. And so, you know, after Bill Clinton's impeachment, he was still pretty popular in the United States. I mean, it really didn't do much to his political career. His vice president was widely popular as well. His vice president also went on to go run in the 2000 presidential election. Bill Clinton's vice president, Al Gore. That is a story of chaos and turmoil and debacle. The story of the 2000 presidential election is next. The 2000 presidential election is one of the most consequential presidential elections in American history. And, you know, still today, it, you know, it really is, looking back on history, it still has large, you know, far-reaching effects. It was an election at the beginning of the millennium, and there was already political chaos. It was NBC News that made the first call in this presidential election between the um, Texas governor, George Bush, and we also had the vice president of the United States, Al Gore. They were both running to be president of the United States here. And what happened was everything was going swell, right? Everything was going well, this typical American election in the United States. You know, two people running for president. But, you know, NBC News calls Florida. NBC News is the first network in the country to call Florida for vice president Al Gore. And then, well... That has to be retracted because, oh, look, there's a problem. NBC News is now taking Florida out of Vice President Gore's column and putting it back in the too close to call. Bush has won Florida's 25 electoral votes. The vice president has recalled the governor and retracted his concession. But this race is simply too close to call. And until the results, the recount is concluded and the results of Florida Florida become official, our campaign continues. Bill Daley, the uh, 
chairman of the Gore campaign. You just heard it. We're all, uh, I think we can hardly believe our ears, he said. I think we can hardly believe our ears was definitely certainly right. That sentiment was essentially expressed and felt all over the country at the time because nothing like this had really ever happened before in American presidential history. I mean, there were some other pretty contentious elections in American history, 1876, for, for example, and other ones, but this really was just an unprecedented you know, essentially action in an American presidential election. Usually you would vote, a person would get elected, they would ascend to the office, inauguration day, bam, that's it. What ended up happening in this election is that Gore, he conceded after he believed um, that Florida would go to Bush. Then he retracted that concession because there was a recount. After that... <laughs> Essentially, there was another recount and in the midst of all of this um, happening. Um, legal woes essentially started to ascend. Litigation went into effect. And that is when the Supreme Court got involved here. And in this case, um, involving essentially paper ballots, they were doing this recount in Florida and they couldn't necessarily um, conceivably see like whose ballot was who, who voted for who in this election, because these were paper ballots and it was really hard to see. There were lots of problems with these ballots. And in this election, what ended up happening as this went to the Supreme Court is that there was a five to four ruling and they ruled that this recount must stop. And what happened here was that because the recount stopped, because the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional, Florida automatically went to George Bush, thenceforth giving him the presidential election. And so uh, George Bush was awarded the presidency. He was officially declared the president-elect. It was a five to four ruling. On January 6, 2001, the vice president um, of the United States, whoever that may be, it is their responsibility um, to uh, go before Congress and essentially, you know, do the formal counting of the electors, and that is essentially the certification of the presidential election. Al Gore, of course, was a contender. He was a candidate in that election. And on January 6, 2001, with maturity and dignity and grace, Vice President Al Gore, officially, he got up there and he certified the presidential election, um, officially declaring that George W. Bush had won and that there would be a peaceful transition of power. The 2000 presidential election, absolutely insane story in American history. But I mean, you know, this was another election where there was a third party candidate. Um, uh, it was Ralph Nader in the 2000 election. He ended up costing Gore um, votes in that 2000 election because he ran as a third party candidate. Third party candidates, as I aforementioned, have huge and big influence in the modern era, it turns out. But I mean, this really was a huge period in American history. I mean, we had the NAFTA. We had the trade agreement between Canada and the United States and Mexico. This essentially is where we traded goods without taxes, which resulted in open markets for these three nations and also cheaper products. It also introduced the um, avocados to the United States. Now, this something was like a little bit known. It was a little bit subtle, but it became more popular and widely known after NAFTA. And a pro of NAFTA is essentially that it created free trade between these nations, also helping boost the economy and reduce the prices of goods. 
A con of this is free trade led to the loss of many manufacturing and overseas jobs, and the impact was far-reaching and it's still felt today. We also had GATT, um, uh, that was for global businesses that promoted trade for uh, reduction of taxes on products around the world. We also had the World Trade Organization. It was an international organization devoted to instituting rules for global trade, and it also helped settle trade disputes. This was just the beginning <laughs> of the millennium here, but it also was the beginning of the George Bush presidency, which would be marked by absolute, complete devastation and turmoil. We'll be right back. I love my new home. I always wanted a house with historic architecture, but it might be too Victorian. Gosh, interesting hemline on those pants. Yes, I do believe they're called pants. Pardon me. No, pardon me. At least Geico makes bundling my home and car insurance easy. I save so much. I have come to call upon... Just text me. Ah. While I'm heading up. <gasps> it's a ghost. For bundling made easy, go to geico.com. It's called self-care. On September 11th, 2001, President George W. Bush was in Sarasota, Florida for essentially an education initiative. This was for his No Child Left Behind campaign. And President Bush later walked back into the classroom of which he was in where the teacher was reading books to kids. He was at Emma E. Booker Elementary School, and he was informed that a plane had crashed into one of the Twin Towers. Subsequently, his chief of staff, Andy Card, walks over to the president again as he was sitting next to the teacher reading that book to these group of second grade students. Andy Card comes over and whispers 11 terrifying words into the president's ear. Quote, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. End quote. If you actually watch the footage of this, President Bush kind of just like, you know, nods, just staying cool, calm, and collected after this has been received. And I mean, it's really harrowing to receive those words there. And you're at this press event. And shortly after that, the president walked out to make a speech notifying everyone that he'd be leaving Florida and heading back to D.C. because there had been a terrorist attack on the nation. Immediately, the president boarded Air Force One and the White House press pool is sort of like just left behind there in Sarasota, Florida. And as they are still in belief, there was an active plan to get the White House press pool back, um, essentially back to D.C., but that ultimately failed. And I mean, I mean, th this wasn't the only attack that day. There was also the attack on the Pentagon, which is the Department of Defense. A plane crashed, plunging into the side of the building. There was also um, the situation in Pennsylvania where a, 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 a plane crashed there in a field after um, passengers were able to fight the hijackers because that plane was believed to be, you know, headed towards the White House or the U.S. Capitol building. But because of those brave passengers... They stopped the hijackers and that plane crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. One of the major frontline witnesses of the 9-11 attacks was Chris Carlson. No, he didn't hold a national security role or some type of political role of prominence, but he was in the press corps. And he was a cameraman for ABC News at the time. He had started being a cameraman essentially back in the 80s. But this was 2001. He ended up serving until 2019 as essentially a White House cameraman. 
And in 2001, he was there on 9-11. He ended up going to Camp David with President Bush after this, after these attacks transpired. He ended up busing back to D.C. because they essentially could not get a plane for the press that day. And he wrote a book called 9-11 with POTUS, which chronicles the, five, the first five days after 9-11 with President George Bush, this absolutely historic terroristic attack on the nation. And I interviewed him about this and his experience during that harrowing time in history. Here's what Mr. Carlson told me. President George W. Bush was at Emma E. Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida. You describe in your book that the weather was nice that day. The president had just went out for his morning jog. A reporter was following a report on the state of the economy. But then the day changed. Uh, someone called you over and uh, you say, quote, I imagined a small Cessna slamming into the World Trade Center on a foggy morning over the Hudson. I pictured a small charred spot on the building's exterior. Nothing more. My eyes went to the monitor. That was no Cessna. It was a large aircraft and the sky was clear. This was no accident, end quote. You note in the book that you had been inside the World Trade Center before on the 103rd floor. Um, as you watched that live news feed, what, what, like, what were the emotions you were going through in that moment? Well, I was astounded. You know, when, when I, had, uh, I had had dinner there a couple of times years before because there was a restaurant called Windows on the World. And it was, it was stunning. You'd go there and, uh, you know, you, if you weren't sitting by the glass, you, you weren't far from it. And it was sort of a tiered layout so that whatever table you were at, you could see window. Um, and I recall watching like smaller planes fly by lower, you know, along the Hudson River and that sort of thing. So I knew when I saw this big um, gash in the side, smoldering gash in the side of the building that, no, that wasn't a Cessna. And I'd flown on a lot of planes and it, it was clear something really large had hit the building. It was, it was astounding because it was a crystal clear day and mm -hmm. I never really believed that uh, somebody could just accidentally fly into it. Also, we had covered a lot of aviation accidents um, in Washington. We had always had a reporter who was completely dedicated to aviation. I remember one of the reporters saying once that, you know, there are um, there's some crashes that the FAA just attributes to suicide because they can't, they can't find any other reasons, even though they can't necessarily prove it. Um, they see it as, as a high probability. And this just looked like that to me um, mm -hmm. at first glance. So, yeah, I was, it, was, it was really shocking at the time, really shocking. Following the planes crashing into the World Trade Center and its ultimate collapse, uh, the Pentagon was also attacked. A plane crashed into a field in Pennsylvania after a heroic passenger fought the hijackers, and the president is flown away on Air Force One. Uh, but the press corps is still stuck in Florida. They are actually, they get left behind in Florida. And you write about that in the book um, in regard to all the enragement at that moment by some of your colleagues. Um, as you all slowly realize, um, I guess for a moment you guys are in disbelief, then you, then, but then you slowly realize that you guys are going to have to bus back to D.C. Um, could you like describe that moment? Yeah, well, it... It was very clear to me we were not flying back to D.C. When, when we heard the skies are closed, I was like, the skies are closed. You know, we are not going to. We had a chartered aircraft. It was a uh, uh, Northwest, like I think it was like an MD-80, which was one of the smaller planes. And um, I just took it at face value. It's not going up. It's not going to fly. Well, 
they wanted to get special permission to fly back with that. And people in the White House were busy trying to facilitate that happening. Um, while they were working on that, there was also the probability, or no, not probability, possibility <laughs> about uh, flying back on one of the planes that brought some of the White House heavy equipment down, like they bring a whole motorcade down in one of those big planes. That, it's a C-17, like military trans transport plane. You know, in, in warfare, they put tanks on them and trucks and things like that. So they will haul a lot of cargo. There was the hope we could get on one of those. That did not work out either. I reached our buses there that were sitting there the whole time. And it was clear to me, like, when they said we weren't, when they said the skies were closed, just get on the buses, bite the bullet, and start heading back. But you have to understand, this was 2001. People did not have an iPhone. They didn't have streaming anything back then. They didn't even have a BlackBerry. That BlackBerry wasn't there yet. Um, so the reporters, did they didn't mind being out of pocket for two or three hours on an airplane ride, but they did not want to be out of pocket for 20 hours uh, riding in a car or a bus or, or, or a van. So that they were pushing very hard against the idea of driving back. They wanted the flying back thing to happen, but eventually they had to drive back. So unfortunately, it was even later in the game when we drove back. So um, it turned out there was, you know, these guys were basically being sort of squeezed out of covering the president because he was no longer with us. Uh -huh. um, but once people got back, there was plenty, there was a seven and a half years to cover this and and it and they filled yeah. it with that pretty much after uh getting back to dc the president later that night on september 11th uh, made a speech about um essentially about what had just happened the terrorist attacks that had transpired that day saying that we will not forget this um later on in your book you also um you go through being at camp david and the president is getting ready to make this big speech um Essentially, in that moment, um, what was the the feeling as the United States was about to declare war? Well, you know, all of us in the press, just like most people in the country, were profoundly affected by this on an emotional level. You have <laughs> a uh, a real nationalistic feeling that I mean, we didn't know why these the two most incredible buildings this country had as as as, as far as being iconic, the view of them. We didn't know why they were taken down. Um, and um, so we were on a real adrenaline, emotional edge. I think everybody was. So we went in at Camp David to film a photo op, and the president proceeded to speak for about 10 or 11 minutes because the day before he had gone to New York to the, the rubble and the destruction and seen it, and he was reporting back on what he had seen. And during the course of that, explanation um, he said he referred to whoever had done this he said we're going to smoke him out of his hole <laughs> you know like like a an animal who's in the foxhole or something like that and i was just uh dumbfounded by it i it, i literally got goosebumps I, I like that came out of like left field mm -hmm. smoke who out of what hole i mean yeah nobody knew of this name bin laden and that they they were hanging out in caves in afghanistan so the idea of 
smoking somebody out of a hole was just totally abstract. Um, and it, it really, it had a huge impact on me. That's, that's why I ended up writing the story down because it was just extraordinary. And, and he did repeat that same phrase uh, a number of times over the next month. It was immediately after the September 11th attacks that the Patriot Act was signed into law. And this basically gave the government essentially unsolicited power to the unsolicited power and also the right, the very, very strong draconian right to listen in on people and search your home without a warrant, effectively just invading your privacy. No privacy. The Patriot Act, you know, its effects with the war on terror, I mean, the damages from that, the controversy, like the, <laughs> the results of the Patriot Act, essentially its effects were so wide scale that it resulted in a rise in hate crimes against Muslim Americans. Um, it would also lead to xenophobia, intense xenophobia, not just for that time period, but also for years and years to come. And I mean, essentially, it was just absolutely just harrowing and completely horrific that that happened. But that was the Patriot Act. And, you know, not many members of Congress basically opposed it. I think it was unified when that vote, when that went through Congress, when it passed, because, hey, we just had a, a terroristic attack. Let's all stand together, even if it means you know, hurting our fellow Americans. What immediately transpired after 9-11 was the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. This would be a new cabinet agency, and under the Department of Homeland Security, we had the Customs and Border Protection, um, which essentially deals with the U.S.-Mexico southern border there. We also had the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration. And this was essential, very, very imperative, because 9-11, the way it happened, in order for those hijackers to get onto those planes, they had to go through the airport. There was no TSA at the time. You could just easily get on a plane with anything. You could even have a gun in your bag. And so basically, TSA would basically be this new security station, at the airport, they were under DHS. They were under the Department of Homeland Security, but they specifically were insured with protecting airports and also instituting security measures. That's why when you go to the airport now, they also... They, that's why when you go to the airport now, they make you take off your shoes and also your belt, everything out of your pockets, unless you have the fast pass. But, you know, you still go through the little machine to get scanned to see if anything is on. And TSA does not play. They are not um, <laughs> the happiest people, um, but their job is to protect the airports, to make sure and to ensure that a 9-11 does not happen again, to make sure that no one gets on a plane with any unsolicited type of weapon that may cause harm. Another key agency that was created around that time was the United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And this basically was this federal agency under DHS, which was tasked with, um, you know, essentially securing the border, um, protecting the U.S. from potential crime, um, from border crossings, and also illegal immigration that threatened the national security and also the public safety of the country. 
the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services was tasked with um, administering, basically, if you wanted to become a citizen of the United States, there was now this formal process for naturalization and also immigration services. So if, let's say, you traveled from Cuba or Haiti or uh, another country and you wanted to become a citizen of the United States, you would essentially go through this program, basically, and, of course, you would take the oath, of course, at the end of it to officially become a U.S. citizen. The 9-11 era in American history was marked with just absolute um, terror. It was marked with um, intense fear and vitriol and vengeance from the country. But there also was this um, strong sense of patriotism. But there also was xenophobia that was, of course, um, effects of this attack. But that era was so frightening in, in the sense that there were also other various, you know, situations and situations of scare. The anthrax attacks later followed just shortly after 9-11. I believe it was a week after that that transpired, where, you know, Americans essentially thought, oh my gosh, this is a second attack, but in a different fashion and in a more scarier way. Americans didn't even want to check the mail anymore because of anthrax. And so this period in the U.S. history was definitely marked with um, terror and just a fundamental changing of the country that would not only change us in 2001 and during that time, but would essentially change the country forever and how we viewed each other and how we viewed um, the threat of terrorism, not only here, but just around the world. Um, and that was a period of of intense change. I mean, we went into Iraq. We evaded Iraq. We also went into Afghanistan. Both of those wars lasting. The Iraq war lasted until 2011. The Afghanistan war did not end until 2021, lasting under, lasting essentially under nearly four different presidential administrations, spanning 20 decades. Questions have emerged over, you know, questions and concerns and also documents over was this war necessary? The leader of Al-Qaeda, um, Osama bin Laden, was killed on May 1st, 2011 under the Obama administration. Uh, you can go on Google, you can go online, search up images, which you'll see is President Barack Obama and also um, his national security team, along with Secretary Hillary Clinton at the time, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, all huddled into this room as this raid is going on and the election of barack obama <laughs> as transcendent as a moment that was in american history it was also a perilous time because the economy was in shambles that story's next whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter Or pick up your phone to call a helpline for your roommate. When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts. It became a Category 5 hurricane and it was just absolutely devastating. But the damage caused by Hurricane Katrina was not merely because of the strong winds and force behind the hurricane, but it was... Also, and strongly because of the levee failure in Louisiana. When the levees burst, 911 calls poured in with the flood water. One or two. 
I need someone out here, ma'am. I'm going to die in this attic. This one from 2544 Debriel Street. The water is steady rising in the attic, ma'am. And I'm going to drown in the attic. And I'm 37 years old. That is a woman there on the phone with 911 um, explaining to the operator um, that water was rising quickly and that she could end up drowning in her attic. The emotional pain inflicted on the city of New Orleans was just absolutely, um, it was detrimental. It was very pernicious. It was a very heartbreaking and just heart-wrenching moment for the country to watch what was happening down in Louisiana. And this, these, this was not the only call. These were not the only calls that were being made that day, that time, that week, that moment. I mean, this was far-reaching. And a lot of people ended up dying in their attics, drowning. A lot of people ended up getting to their rooftops. Finally, thank God, getting to write signs like, free, please help us. We're down here. I mean, water was rising high and it was rising fast. Um, babies, along with other people, flipped over in the water, deceased. It was a hurricane that caused millions of lives to be uprooted, destroyed, and forever changed. It was a storm that cost this country billions of dollars. This is more from the National Geographic Channel. When Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, entire neighborhoods vanished under 20 feet of water. The devastation ranks as one of America's worst natural disasters, but also one of the worst man-made disasters. Uh, now, you heard him say that it was one of America's one of America's worst natural disasters, but it was also one of America's um, worst man-made disasters. And he says that because, yes, definitely the levee failure in New Orleans, in New Orleans. Um, but there also was another type of um, essentially man-made um, exacerbation of this catastrophe. And that was the federal government's response. Because on April 25th, 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit the Florida coast as a Category 1 with winds of 80 miles per hour, Florida's Governor Jeb Bush declared a state of emergency. It began worsening and then it changed to a Category 5 practically overnight. And then it hit Mississippi and subsequently Louisiana. And many homes had been submerged and 80%, 80% of the city was underwater. 80%. And as the situation got worse, as the situation exacerbated, Michael Brown, who once ran uh, an Arabian Horse Association, had no experience at all in emergency management, but he was serving as the director of FEMA. And this is what he said the morning um, that it happened. After it happened, he said, quote, can I quit now? Can I go home? It was that afternoon that Hurricane Katrina had ripped a hole in the Superdome, which put many sheltered victims at risk. I said this affected the lives of millions of people. A lot of people were being sheltered in the Superdome, and that was a huge scare. And a few days later, Michael Brown, the FEMA director, said, quote, I'm trapped now, please rescue me. Essentially thinking that this is funny. This is, oh, this is such a comical event. People were dying but they were playing games. 
and it was that afternoon that Hurricane Katrina had ripped a hole in the Superdome. And later on, President Bush decided to finally declare an emergency disaster for the states of Louisiana and Mississippi, and Katrina then downgraded back to a tropical storm while passing over Tennessee. But the damage on the Gulf Coast did not just go away. It did not just subside as Hurricane Katrina left and went back into a tropical storm and went back into the ocean. The damage was still there. It was horrific and it was immense. In Mississippi, coastal towns had been eradicated and hundreds of people were believed to be dead. The city of New Orleans was left without electricity and drinking water. And many residents were still stranded on rooftops. And that's when we began seeing just remarkable footage on national television of people waving umbrellas and holding up signs that read, help us. Bodies were left floating in the streets. Looting transpired. Thousands of people began traveling to the Superdome in hopes of being evacuated. At the Superdome, the conditions were essentially unhealthy, just diametrically terrible. People lacked food, water, and also sanitation. And while people were dying and stranded from Hurricane Katrina, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice decided, oh, it's a great time to go on a vacation. She ended up writing in her memoir years later how she flew to New York and she turned on the television and saw that, oh yeah, the situation in New Orleans was pretty bad. She then, quote unquote, called the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mike Chertoff, inquiring if there was anything I could do. Quote, it's pretty bad, he said. We discussed the question of foreign help briefly, but Mike was clearly in a hurry. He said he called me if he needed me. I hung up, got dressed, and went to see Spamalot. End quote. Spamalot, of course, was the Monty Python musical, and people were so astonished to see the Secretary of State, a member of the cabinet, there just laughing it up as the Gulf Coast was completely in tatters. The New York Daily News writes, quote, Secretary Rice was booed by some audience members at Spamalot, the Monty Python musical at the Schubert Theater, when the lights went up after the performance. End quote. Apparently that did not wake her because, you know, she decided to go elsewhere. Again, having a luxurious vacation while people were dying in the Gulf Coast, Secretary Rice decided to go shoe shopping, which provoked this encounter between her and a fellow shopper. Gawker reports, quote, a fellow shopper unable to fathom the absurdity of Rice's timing went up to the secretary and reportedly shouted, how dare you shop for shoes while thousands are dying? End quote. The article continues, Never one to have her fashion choices questioned, Rice had security physically remove the man, physically remove the woman. End quote. Secretary Rice later denied that anybody had actually yelled that at her in the store, but she did confirm in her memoir that she was shopping for shoes. She also said that she regretted all of it, writing in her memoir, quote, I sat there kicking myself for having been so tone deaf. What had I been thinking? End quote. Also, pictures had later surfaced of President Bush having a great time vacationing in Texas, playing the guitar, and also eating cake. New York Times reporter Eric Lipton later told, uh, reported that the White House knew about the levee's failure on the night of the storm. Nevertheless, administration officials were doing this. The vice president was fly fishing in Wyoming while the president's chief of staff was just vacationing in Maine. So everyone is just going to take a day off. We're going to take a day in the sun. The Bush administration's response 
to Hurricane Katrina was a complete and unmitigated abdication of failure of leadership by the United States federal government. It was just absolutely terrible. I mean, it was a cataclysmic failure. And I mean, that was definitely clear so in the reporting that followed, because when the Bush administration finally did try to resolve this situation, they first had to fire the International Arabian Horse Association guy, who was Michael Brown, the director of FEMA, who joked about, oh, I'm trapped now, please rescue me. They had to fire that guy because he had no emergency experiences whatsoever. And after that completely botched response, they brought in someone new with experience and actual commitment. His name was Lieutenant General Russell Honoré. And by the time he was put in charge, by the time Lieutenant General Russell Honoré and the Army was put in charge, thousands of Americans had already died. Thousands of Americans had already died. It was too late. But his leadership was superb. It was expeditious. It was commanding and strategic. But it took the federal government that long to actually act. And that is why the abdication of leadership from the federal government during Hurricane Katrina is uh, essentially led to the downfall of Bush. He was not only becoming unpopular for purported war crimes, but also essentially for this the federal government's response to Katrina. And I say that this affected and uprooted the lives of millions of people, also destroyed many lives as well. Um, I will say this one uniquely personal story. My girlfriend was born in 2005, the same year that I was born. And um, she was actually born in Louisiana. And it was around that time that during Hurricane Katrina, they actually ended up moving here to Texas because the situation had become so bad there that a lot of people ended up moving to Texas. And my girlfriend and her family were one of them. So essentially, Texas is all she has known her life. I mean, she has been to Louisiana to visit family. But, you know, she is one of the many people that traveled here with her family to escape what was happening in New Orleans, to escape what was happening in Louisiana at the time. I mean, <laughs> the Bush administration's failure during Hurricane Katrina, the federal government's slow, um, essentially begrudging response, is something that will always live in infamy. And it was something that marked the modern era with just... Um, a lot of impertinence and vitriolic... Um, rhetoric and sentiment um, on behalf of the government's part. That was definitely expressed by millions of Americans, and it's something that was watched all across the world. I mean, frankly, just completely, completely shambolic. We'll be right back with the election of a president that changed this country, and essentially an election that astonished the world. <laughs> The 2008 election was quite a spectacle, let's just say. Um, we had John McCain, Senator John McCain, and Sarah Palin, quite a team. We also had Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And what ended up prevailing in that election, what ended up happening is um, the Democratic ticket won. 
And that meant that Barack Obama would become president. That meant that Senator Barack Obama from Chicago, Illinois, would be elected the president of the United States. I mean, it was just an absolutely historic victory. It was one that was celebrated by millions and astonished the world. The United States, a country which previously held slavery as a major and necessary institution, endured a multitude of racism, went through the civil rights movement, and also had lots of hate crimes transpire in this country for generations, had finally, finally elected its first black and mixed race president. I mean, the country was just shocked. There was lots of cheers around the world. There was lots of cheers around the country. Uh, my grandpa, in fact, still has the newspaper from Inauguration Day from the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. And he has the newspaper of Barack Obama becoming president there, Barack Obama being inaugurated on January 20th, 2009. And when o Obama got into office, you know, essentially went right straight into work because there was a lot to do. I mean, um, we ended up having the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. This was passed to help Americans and the economy recover amid the recession because we were going through a recession at the time. The economy was in shambles. We had a stock market crisis. It was absolutely chaotic. We also had the Affordable Care Act, which was passed, more so famously known as Obamacare. And essentially, this was passed to protect Americans with pre-existing conditions, and it also expanded Medicare in the United States. On top of that, we had the rise of the conservative American Tea Party. If I interviewed my grandpa for this podcast, he could speak about this, honestly, for hours. But basically, the rise of the conservative American Tea Party was due to the 2008 election. This was due to the fact that there was a growing frantic sentiment, a growing conspiratorial section of the Republican Party forming. And, you know, basically this anti-black, this strong extremist, um, essentially rhetoric, because Barack Obama, being black, was just elected. They also claimed essentially that his birth certificate was fake. So those conspiracies went on and on and on. And the Obama era has, you know, it has been marked by lots of, of, of popularity. Obama was one of the most popular presidents in the modern era, along with Bill Clinton. I mean, it was just a completely successful term. There was a lot that happened. Legislation that got through, many foreign policy achievements, and there were no scandals. So it was a pretty influential and monumental moment in American history, not only just the presidential administration of Obama, but also watching the election and that moment happen that, you know, through the civil rights moment, through slavery in this country, the fact that we could see a black person ascend to the highest office in the land in the United States was just absolutely remarkable and historic. Moved many to tears and it was an incredibly emotional and transformative moment for this nation. Phew, welcome back to the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Oh my gosh, I think we're like 60 minutes into this now. Um, to my history teacher, Miss Sade, who's listening to this, um, deep apologies. You know what? Because this was not supposed to be like an hour long. I believe we're spending over an hour and two minutes. Um, um, I may get points taken off for this last for this last section, technology in the modern era, but you know what? We've been at this for like an hour, so it is fine if it does come to that. But I will just say a lot of research, a lot of work went into this, stressing, sweating, but here we go. 
Um, in the modern era, there were lots of um, innovations. There was lots of... Um, I'm ad-libbing this, guys. This is all from my brain. There was lots of movement in lots of fields because Steve Jobs, um, the founder of Apple, ended up creating something called the iPhone. I have one. Um, many of you have one. Lots of people, millions of people around the world have an iPhone. It was something that would be completely transformative for this new modern era because, I mean, before that, you know, essentially what was was like the phone on the wall, you know, to get to like, you know, <laughs> call up someone's house. We also had like the little, these large gargantuan phones. We also had the flip phone, et cetera, et cetera. But the introduction of the iPhone was truly something different. What? You could actually call people on FaceTime and see them? What? I mean, <laughs> transformative decade. So Steve Jobs' innovation with the iPhone, I mean, that was huge. That was like Apple's big moment. And it would forever just change the, the landscape. It would forever change the technological stratosphere in the United States and around the world. We also had Bill Gates with the impact with Microsoft, the software. And lots of people love Microsoft. Lots of people use Microsoft. It's used in schools, workplaces, um, for various organizations and agencies, Microsoft is used. And it's also able to, you know, essentially be on any software. Microsoft is also available on Apple because Steve Jobs and Apple ended up collaborating and that's where essentially you got the MacBooks and stuff. Well, not necessarily, not yet, because it's not there yet. We got the Macintosh, I believe it was. These little Mac, these Macs, I'm just going to call them Macs. <laughs> these Mac computers, that's what we got during that decade. And um, the collaboration where Steve Jobs and Bill Gates collaborated on that, thenceforth having um, Microsoft software on Apple. Bill Gates in Microsoft eventually did come up with his own computer technology. And that's when we got, you know, Windows. But Windows expanded into like HP and Dell and others. Well, gosh, that's a different company. Goodness, guys. I'm sorry, a little bit off here. But you know what? We are going to nail it through because this is our final segment. Um, the pros and cons of the computer and digital revolution. Um, I will say one great pro of this is that it definitely increased, um, the knowledge of many people. It also increased the access to information because before you essentially had to go to the library, search things up and it would take, it would be like laborious. But during this time, it was much more easier and efficient to access information because you essentially had everything at your fingertips. You just like type in something into Google, get the answer instantly. And I mean, the, the cons of this, the cons of the computer and digital revolution was, of course, increased screen times, um, which would eventually become addicting in this modern age. Now we have TikTok and stuff. And so that was definitely one of the cons of this era. Um, globalization and multinational corporations, they impacted, um, businesses and also the economy in the modern world, but that also did lead to a reduction of wealth for everyone else in the country, for everyone else who was lower. I mean, this also led to lots of financial scandals in the 2000s, as we have seen lots of businesses being taken down for financial crimes. Whew. Diffusion of cultures um, explained in the modern day. Um, 
definitely, I will say with the modern day, everyone is kind of doing their own thing now. Um, it's, you know, like everyone doing literally just their own thing, being unique in their own way. Um, we have this diffusion of cultures where you can now engage in certain cultures. You can now engage in certain actions and partake in them and have fun. And it is definitely something that is more collaborative, is more accepted um, now as opposed to not being accepted or entertained back then. And um, yeah, diffusion of culture. Now, I know that sounds like I said a lot with very little, but we have made it to the end of this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show, a TJPS special, The Life in the Modern Era. Uh, thank you to my history teacher, Miss Sade, for listening to this episode as well. Appreciations, lots and lots of appreciations and accolades. If you have made it this far in the episode, which honestly, to many people, I'm not sure they will. If you have made it this far, thank you so much. I love and appreciate you more than words. Have a wonderful day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. The Jeremiah Patterson Show will be back with content in late May, early June. So that's when school can close and graduation is already over as well. Whew. Thank you again for listening to The Jeremiah Patterson Show. Thank you for being with us on this special report tonight. Take care. I'll see you soon.